a reading from the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way, the gospel of the Lord. Well, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Uh, we've just been through that. Uh, it's sort of an odd week where, uh, you know, it's after Christmas Day, before New Year's celebrations that we, you know, had last night. It's a time where, where time kind of moves a little bit differently. I don't know if you've experienced that, but kind of slows down if you've stayed home and uh, maybe speeds up if you've been traveling or, or you're hosting guests. Or, you know, if you go to work, everything's a little bit off because so many people are away. It's one of those times of year when uh, you can get a bit nostalgic uh, or maybe you get a bit apprehensive. For some people, it's an opportunity to reflect on the past year. Or maybe it's an opportunity to plan ahead for this new year of 2023. So it is a new year. It's another one. Looking back, uh, was the past year everything you hoped it would be? Uh, you may have heard uh, some people talking about the pandemic as an opportunity to reset, to look at things differently and to repri reprioritize things. Has that happened? Did that happen? Or have we rushed back to the way things were uh, a bit too eagerly? Or if we look at the, uh, the big news of the past year, what consumes your thoughts? COVID is still a thing. There's a war in Ukraine that's still going on. The supply chain, uh, it seems like it's still messed up. Um, every, you don't know what you're going to get sometimes at the store. What's next? Looking forward, what are you looking forward to this year? Or, or maybe what are you dreading that's on the horizon? Even if you've had a really good year, uh, it's hard to ignore the brokenness of the world, right? If, if you're 
if you, you pay attention to what's going on, it, it's really hard to ignore it. And, and if you're struggling with loss or with illness, you're keenly aware of the fragile nature of life. Every year, um, we get you know, lists of things, and one of those lists is all the notable people who've died. And so as we turn to our Bible passage today, it's our reading in Isaiah 61 and 62, I want us to look at the question of what do we do in light of the fact that Jesus has come? That's what we've been celebrating in this Christmas season. What do we do in light of the fact that Jesus has come, yet there's still a whole lot of brokenness in the world? Our response often leans in one of two ways. One impulse is to despair and just to resign ourselves to making the best of it since things aren't going all that well. We may uh, cloister ourselves away and carve out a space that's as comfortable as we can make it. There's another impulse that's kind of the opposite is that we, we want to fight for justice and peace and change and all adversity is just fuel to try harder. Right? And so we throw ourselves wholeheartedly into whatever cause we grow passionate about. But often, even in our well-intentioned efforts to fight for good causes, we end up causing different sorts of pain and disorder. We may accomplish some good and even noble things, but yet the brokenness of the world still persists, and the pain in our own lives still persists. It seems that no matter which way we go, we fall or we fail. Now, I'm not advocating for despair, but neither am I pushing for a sort of triumphalistic activism which acts as if we just get our acts together, we'll be able to sort out all the problems of the world. When I turn to our passage in Isaiah, I see neither a call to retreat nor a call for brute force to deal with the problems and injustices of the world, but rather I see a call to persistent praise and prayer. Now, I know that that maybe doesn't sound all that convincing, right? Like, maybe it's even kind of a letdown. Like, really, just prayer and praise? That, that, that sounds like a retreat or, or a way to avoid the issues at hand. But I think that as we look closer at our passage in Isaiah, we'll see that praise and prayer are actually a part of an activism of sorts. Sort of a participational activism whereby we're brought on board to pursue peace and justice and wholeness as God sees it and fights for it himself. So Isaiah 61 and 62 are a response. A particular passage is actually part of a series of responses to God intervening in the world to bring about justice and righteousness and peace through his promised servant, through Jesus. And Isaiah, the entire book, which, which is huge, it's 66 chapters, it's all about justice and righteousness and peace. It's all about calling out injustices, setting things right, and establishing peace. If we look at the whole book of Isaiah, we can divide it up into three parts. The first part is chapters 1 to 39, and they're all about God calling his people to be a people of justice and peace. In the opening charge that Isaiah makes to God's people, we find way back in chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, these words. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil, de evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. 
Isaiah is basically saying, look out for the most vulnerable in society, those who are being taken advantage of. How you treat them reveals what's in your heart. And in the second part of Isaiah, that's chapters 40 to 55, we find that God's call to seek justice and correct oppression has not been obeyed. And so Israel, that's God's people, they have been forced into exile, first under the Assyrian Empire and then under the Babylonian Empire. Here God moves from a call to justice to enacting justice himself. And if God's people are on the side of the oppressors, they face judgment too. Exile is judgment here. And so from that place of exile, we enter into this last, play, last, last section of Isaiah, chapters 56 to, 56 to 66. In this section, we're looking forward to a time of restoration, when justice is served and peace has come. In this section, God is still concerned with enacting justice. It starts off with these, these words, excuse me, in Isaiah 56. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. This section of Isaiah is full of hope with a vision of a, renew, of a renewed heavens and earth where people flourish in a restored relationship with God. However, there's one key difference between this section of Isaiah that we're in and the two that came before. In the first section, God is calling his people to be a people of justice and righteousness and peace. In the second section, God's moved to enacting justice. And in this third section, justice is now being done by God and his people. They're cooperating together for the flourishing of the entire cosmos, the new heavens and the new earth. In this vision of peace, God and humanity are reconciled together and everything benefits from this. God includes humanity, he includes us in what he's doing. Now this is not new, part, this participation in what God is doing. This is part of God's intention for humanity from the beginning. We are created in God's image as stewards of his creation, caring for it and cultivating it. But we're fallen, we're broken, we're alienated from our creator by humanity's desire to take the lead and to do it our way and ignore God's intentions and direction. This is why in Isaiah, we start out with God calling us back to justice and righteousness and peace. And when we don't do it, God steps in to see that justice is done. Yet God is not just about judgment for the sake of judgment. There's a redemptive element to what he's doing. He wants to see us flourish. And as we flourish, that overflows to the flourishing of the homes that we are in and the communities and the cities we are in, and so on to the world. And this brings us to Jesus. God includes us, again, in what he is doing through the arrival of Jesus. But what does the arrival of Jesus mean? And why respond in these two ways, in praise and in prayer? Our passage starts out with these words. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, my soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Praise, the first response. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. Well, why? What are we responding to? We're responding to Jesus. Jesus is God stepping into creation. In fact, 
When he begins his mission to set things right on earth, one of the first things he does is read from the scroll of Isaiah with these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is Jesus reading from the beginning of Isaiah 61. Um, that's just before our passage that we're, we're looking at. But it's uh, Jesus reading from that as recorded in Luke chapter 4. Jesus there is in a synagogue and the teachers there pulled out of the scroll and asked him to read it. So he reads from it. Then he says, today this is fulfilled in your presence. He's claiming that he's the long-awaited savior that his people have been looking for. The one who will bring about justice and righteousness for all and usher in a time of peace. Jesus, whose birth we celebrated a week ago, is the focal point for the reconciliation of God and humanity. And when we look to the Gospels, to the records of Jesus' life, we see him doing these things described in Isaiah. Proclaiming good news to the poor. Justice is here. I'm setting you free. We see him talking to the woman who has been bleeding for years and is therefore excluded from community. And he says, I'm restoring your dignity. I'm healing you. We see him with the blind man or with a leper. And he says, I'm restoring you to participate in community. But in doing more than that, I'm going to do more than just what you think you need. I'm setting you free. I'm healing you at the level of your broken alienation from God. And so Jesus goes on to the point where he dies on the cross and he takes all of our alienation from God and sets things right. That's what Jesus dying on the cross is all about. That open invitation for you to follow Jesus and get in on what he's doing. Jesus makes us right with God. That is what it means when Isaiah is praising God for clothing us with the garments of salvation and the robes of righteousness. And then in the wake of Jesus' death and resurrection, we see communities of Jesus' followers springing up. People have encountered this Jesus who has mended their broken lives and made them whole. These communities, as they develop, we eventually call them churches. They become witnesses uh, to the Roman Empire and to, to the world, uh, witnessing to who Jesus is and what he is all about. We have communities that care for people when there's a pandemic that decimated Rome. We have communities of Jews and Gentiles that would sit down and eat together, breaking down ethnic divisions, when that was unthinkable just a few years before. We see Paul, a religious leader who once sanctioned the execution of Christians, becoming the most vocal proponent for including non-Jewish people among the people of God. And he writes a good chunk of the New Testament. Well, what's our response to all of this, all of God's activity? Well, we praise him. We worship him. Now, Isaiah, he, he does this by bursting into poetry in our passage. And as he does, so he takes up the imagery of a wedding to describe the anticipation and joy of what's going on. We are gifted wedding clothes. Those of us who want to follow Jesus are given the garments of salvation and the robes of righteousness. We're clothed in these. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Weddings are celebrations, and a wedding is one of the main metaphors that we find in the Bible to describe God's relationship with his people. 
Just as a man and woman are joined together, God and his people are joined together in an intimate relationship. An important part of this relationship is the possibility of procreation. It goes all the way back to creation when Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, were, as part of being created in the image of God, to reflect his creative function in fulfilling the charge to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Here now we're getting another metaphor that gets mixed in that Isaiah uses. It's fruitfulness. Verse 11 of Isaiah 61 goes on to say, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. This is an image of flourishing. The whole creation is growing to a place where everything is set right and oriented towards God in praise and worship. The offspring in this image is in this image being made right with God and with each other and praising God. Sorry, the offspring is like being made right with God and praising praising God in a way that bears witness to the world. And here, as is important with poetic expression, we need to pay attention to the verb tenses. Uh, all the English majors are excited now. In the second half of verse 10, um, we are in the past tense. He has clothed me with salvation. He has covered me with righteousness. We're given this image that we have been dressed up for something, for a wedding, and we have been gifted the garments of salvation and the robe of righteousness. This is what Jesus does, right? Um, you want to be about justice in the world. You want to be a person of peace. You want to face the time that we're in with hope instead of despair, well, Jesus gifts us salvation by making things right with God. And, and we're prepared for something. On the cross, Jesus took everything we've ever done that is twisted and harmful and selfish and took the end result of those dispositions and actions, death, and through his death, reunites you to God. And from this place of security, you're formed into a person of peace and justice because you're united to the God of justice and peace. So this is cause for praise, but there's a tension emerging right as we move towards the end of verse 11. The verb tense shifts to the future, to what God will do. It ends with, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. The anticipation of being clothed with wedding clothes doesn't quite get to the happily ever after with the completion of the wedding ceremony. Not yet. There's some sort of delay. We're all dressed. We're all ready, clothed with righteousness, clothed, clothed with salvation. But, but there's, there's a pause. And so with this shift and with this tension, this is where we move into our second response. We move from praise to prayer. And this lines up with the time that we are in right now. The time between Jesus' first coming to us and his second coming. In fact, one of the main metaphors for what everything will be like when Jesus returns and sets everything right and makes everything new is a wedding feast. And this means that, that we're in this in-between time when God's rule is breaking into our present lives in often unexpected ways. We look for the, the fullness of justice and reconciliation and peace when the kingdom of God comes down to earth and all is made well. But for now, one of the responses that we have is that we're called to pray. Isaiah 62.1 says, 
For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Here's that tension of waiting for righteousness and salvation to be fully realized and calling out to God in the midst of that waiting. We praise God, but then we pray. And even though we want to see justice and peace and healing, we have to stop and pray. And yes, we fight for justice and we seek peace, and, but we're not able to end all the suffering and wars and discord by our own effort. We don't want to run ahead of God and do things our way. That's what got us into this whole mess that we needed saving from in the first place. Rather, we take the vision of what things will be like when God makes all things new, and we let that inform our prayers and shape our vision so that what we do now reflects what will be, even if that's imperfect right now. And that's actually what Isaiah is doing. You see, the problem is that right now we only catch glimpses of peace and justice. In our everyday lives and in the world around us, we often see more destruction and distress than, than joyful wedding celebration. And this isn't new. This is the, also the context of the passage that we're reading. So in, uh, in 62 verse 1, when Zion is referenced, it's looked on from the perspective of a people in exile, looking forward to a day when God's promises and God's people are fully restored, fully, fully experienced. Zion is the name for the city of Jerusalem, and it's the most important city in ancient Israel back in Jesus' day, and it's still a fairly important city now. But more specifically, Zion came to represent the hill on which the temple was located. And the temple was the center of Jewish worship, and the temple represented God's presence with his people. Now, one of the most catastrophic events uh, in, in the history of God's people is when they were forced into exile and the temple was destroyed. And so here in Isaiah, we're given an image of hope, one of restoration. The prayer is for Zion, the place where God is with his people, to shine forth again, for the salvation and righteousness of God to be on display for all people to see. That's in verse 2. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. In this section, Isaiah is giving voice to all of God's people. They're not going to keep silent. They won't stop worshiping God, and it's from this worshiping of God that there's this transformation into a prayer that is declaring what it will be like when everything is made new and whole and right again. Isaiah is voicing a prayer of the people of God, but it's a prayer of expectation that everyone is to hear about. It's boldly speaking out the truth, even though when you look around, it doesn't seem like God has things under control. It's a prayer that's almost a protest in itself. It pushes it back against the injustice and unrealized dreams with hope. It's kind of like a prayer that is declaring what's going to be and what's meant to be in the face of injustice and disappointment. Well, what is meant to be? Well, here the wedding imagery is picked up again. Only this time, instead of wedding preparation, we're looking at an actual wedding. Verse 2 describes the taking of a new name. Right? That, that's part of a wedding ceremony back then, and it's still part of wedding, some wedding ceremonies today. Taking on of a new name. 
And then there's another part of a wedding ceremony that uh, back in, in Isaiah's time, part of it involved the exchanging of crowns as part of the ceremony. And we actually see that in verse 3. It says, The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hands of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. There's this wedding imagery that's getting, it's getting all kind of mixed up as Isaiah moves between all the different effects of everything being finally put right uh, as it's put in right relationship with God. It, it gets all even more messed up in the next few verses. In one line, it's personal. It's, it says, you shall no longer be termed forsaken. And then the very next line, it extends beyond that, encompassing all of the land, and your land will not be termed desolate. And instead of being forsaken and desolate, there's new names that are given, names that are, my delight is in her, and married. So rather than being known as a people that are forsaken by God and living in a land that is desolate, the hope is that God's people are looked on with delight and in loving relationship. And our passage actually ends with the words, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So once again, we have images of flourishing, people flourishing, the land flourishing. It's an image of people united to God in a restored creation. Have you ever thought about the fact that God delights in his people when you pray? Or that we look forward to a time when God rejoices over his people, when, when everything's made right? This future hope is, that is expressed in wedding imagery is one that's actually picked up in the New Testament. The church is often referred to as the bride of Christ. And so in this image, we see God's people have been united to Christ. Yet in the present time, we still await the final celebration, the consummation of the wedding feast that signifies that all things are well. So there's in a sense, um, where what we experience now in prayer is a, it's a foretaste of what will come when Jesus returns to fully realize the restoration of all things, the new heavens and the new earth. There is a sense, the sense where we pray into that reality that has yet to be fully realized. It's part of what we pray when we pray, your kingdom come in the Lord's prayer. We long for all things to be made new and to be set right. And as we pray, we live into this reality. It's how we pursue advocating for justice and longing for peace. It's how we engage in the kind of participational activism together with God in an intimate union. With Jesus, all this is made possible by righteousness and following God's lead with confidence that he will set all things right in the end. And so as I close, I just want to return to that image of Zion. Jesus calls us to join him in his mission of justice and righteousness that leads to peace. We respond to Jesus' call to do so by first simply accepting what he offers and turning to what he's doing. But then we're sustained and held through whatever tough things lie ahead as we witness to justice and righteousness and peace through praising Jesus and engaging in bold expectant, intimate prayer. And we're given a vision of what we're longing for right at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. And uh, it's actually based on Isaiah. 
And I'm just going to read the passage for you. And I want us to just sit with this image as we go into our time of prayer and we'll go into singing and celebrating Holy Communion. As we've entered into 2023, let's sit with this image from, my, from Revelation chapter 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.